Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in today's episode we'll be talking, um, does reading a book in school make you hate it? Or, or not? <laughs> and in the second <laughs> half we'll be talking A View from the Bridge by Arthur Miller versus uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee. Um, but before we get to any of that, Rachel, how are you and what are you reading? Um, thanks, Simon. I'm very well. Um, I just had Easter holidays, so that was lovely. And mm. I went to Northumberland, which was a beautiful part of, of the UK. If anyone listening is from Northumberland, you're a lucky person. Congratulations. Um, yeah, well done. You really lucked out on life there. <laughs> um, it's beautiful, honestly. You know when you're just driving around and everywhere you look is just beautiful. I look in front of me at the road when I'm driving, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't pay attention. <laughs> um, it was just wonderful and just so empty. And when obviously you're used to London, where there's just people all the time, um, it was just so wonderful to be in a place where it was just blissful and quiet. And it was so silent at night. All I could hear at night was the occasional bar of the sheep. Uh. I know, and I actually saw the stars. I could see the stars. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Even in, even in Oxford, you never see stars. So going out to the countryside is always nice to just stare at the sky for a bit. Yeah, so it was more. wonderful. I was yeah, I was down at my parents' house. It's the penultimate Easter that my dad will be vicar then. So sort of slowly winding down, doing doing not quite the last things, but you know, it does feel a bit strange. It's all coming to an end, but you know, it was good fun. Lots of um fun Easter things. Lovely. Yes. Um, and what, are you, what are you reading? Well, do you know what? Um, I've read an awful lot of books over the last couple of weeks, and I'm going to talk about a couple of them. Oh, please. Yeah, um, yeah just briefly. Um, so the first one I read that I really enjoyed is a new book, which, you know, doesn't often happen, so oh. I feel like I should mention it, just to prove I do occasionally read uh, a book that's come out within the last year. Um it's called Idaho by Emily Ruskovich, something like that. Um, she's American and she's young and <laughs> she's written this marvellous book about, um, it's kind of like a mystery, but it's not a mystery. And it's about a, a woman who's murdered her child and um, you go back in time and forward in time and you hear all about it from the perspective of the man who married her husband after she was in, put in prison. Um, sounds weird. But it's so beautifully written, and it's just a really lovely, like, it was a, such a wonderful reading experience, because it was just so well written. And it was a really brave book, in that you never find out why um, oh, wow. this, this child was killed. There's no reason, and that's not the point of the book, and I really like that. What made um, you pick it up? How do you hear about it? The cover was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um and also I'd read about it and I read an interview with um, the author online and she, all of her favourite American writers are my favourite American writers. Like, um, oh, that's a good sign, yeah. Yeah, so I thought, well, if she loves Richard Yates and she loves Wallace Stegner and she loves um, William Maxwell and Alice Munro and all those sorts of people, I know Alice Munro is Canadian, but she did also reference her, um, then I thought, well, you know, it's got to be worth me trying out. So I found it in foils and I thought I'll give it a go and I absolutely loved it. So I really recommend that. Mm. Um, and then when I was on holiday, um, obviously, because Project 24 has gone out of the window, I thought <laughs> it would be fine to buy some souvenir books. So I went to Barrack-upon-Tweed, which is the border town between England and Scotland. 
with a wonderful viaduct, if anyone's interested. Um, <laughs> Are there any I viaduct like, fans amongst that? I love viaducts. I love them. <laughs> Actually, they are great. I, I, I so, mock you, but they are brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were strolling along, and we happened to walk past a bookshop, and so we went in, obviously. Um, and it was full of lots of interesting books, actually, the sorts of middle-brow ones, and I wished I'd, I'd had slightly longer to browse. But it was... Um, I found uh, I've been reading um, Scott at Farid Middlebrow's blog on your station, Simon. Oh, good. And I saw that he has this list of uh, it's like a, a syllabus of Middlebrow reading that he's done, where he's kind of listed the top 100 books to read or authors to read or something mm-hmm. like that. It was worth checking out if anyone's interested. Um, and I saw that he'd put the misread books on there and I've always seen them on like libraries and things and it's always been like the old lady saga section so I've always thought oh no that must be terrible but I saw um when he recommended them I thought oh look out for that and then I saw a, a copy of the first of the um Thrush Green series and Thrush Green is a village and it had a lovely dust jacket so I picked it up and it was cheap and I bought it and I mean I started reading it and then I stayed up all night to finish it oh, really? it was just so good and like so good in that lovely just gentle way where it's a lovely story and it's a bit ridiculous you know like people meet each other and they just know they're going to marry each other within five minutes and that sort of thing but sometimes <laughs> you just want that don't you just something that you can switch off and just love and it was just really cozy and lovely it reminded me a bit of a Dorothy Whipple though a bit less highbrow you know but still very well written and um I absolutely loved it. So I'm really looking forward to reading the rest. And I'd be really interested to know what people have to say about her because I don't really know where to go next, like whether I should continue with the series because there's like 12 books in the series or um, read have one of her other series. But I've left the book with my mum because I know she'll love it. So I dropped off her car that she very kindly lent me to drive all the way to Northumberland oh. yesterday. And um, I was like, mum, you've got to read this book. So I've left it with her and I'll see what she thinks. But it's lovely. Well, I've only read one misread book. It was uh, Gossip from Thrush Green. So oh, Bloomy. so it's in the Thrush Green series. Yeah, yeah. Green series. I think it's some, maybe towards the end of them, because it was written in the 1980s. Um, yeah. And I I enjoyed it. I, get, like, I, I went through it very quickly, but I did, I did end up feeling like it was maybe just a bit too light for me. But then I... When I wrote my blog review about it a few years ago, there were people who said that her earlier ones are much more engaging, and that someone said that I think this is the Fair Acre series might be the other series. They slightly preferred the other other long running series of her books. But um, I think for certain moods, I definitely go back to it. For moods, readers like I just want you know entertaining story, engage you know entertaining characters, no, no real high stakes. Not you're not going to yeah. be too anxious about anything that happens to anyone because it'll all work out right in the end, probably. And even if it doesn't, it's sort of more like a fairy tale than anything else. Yeah. Um, but, but I think I I might. Yeah, I I think I might go to Richard Crompton or 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 Dorothy Whipple or someone like, when I'm in that mood, perhaps. But yeah. I'm saying that for back of one that probably isn't her best, so I should try more. But I know my mum's a big fan of hers actually. She wrote, she used to read quite a lot. I don't think she's read any recently, but she used to read quite a lot of them. Um, and there's certainly fans out there, so I'm sure people will be able to recommend. Um, which ones you should read next? Pop them in the yes. comments on, um, or, or tweet them to book underscore snob. If you wish. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and Rachel will see them, you know, in a week or two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> Well, I had my a discovery as well. Well, not really a discovery because I already knew of him, but I never got into reading him. Um, have you read any Beverly Nichols? 
No, but I always see books by Beverly Nichols in shops and wonder whether I ought to buy them. Yeah, so I I was fairly confident that I'd like him, and um, I just hadn't got around to reading it. And so many people whose tastes I, I completely agree with on online loved his books. And I thought, well, one day well. And then it was when the 1951 Club came around, um, which is finished now, but um, I read Mary Hall for that, which is about him. It's the first in the trilogy of him buying a, a, a Georgian manor, I guess, called Mary Hall um, and doing up the garden in the house. And the Mary Hall is mostly out the garden. He's just he's so funny and so lovely, and he's quite he's quite snipey in that sort of E.F. Benson-esque, like, you know, one-upmanship, but with a kind heart sort of thing. Um, it's supposedly non-fiction, but um, I, I hope it's quite elaborated. Not elaborated, what's the word? <laughs> you know, yeah, um, fictionalised at least, because he's quite mean about some of the local people. But I loved it. <laughs> I loved it so much. I just love, like, slightly spiky humour, especially when it's in that sort of well-meant way. Does that make sense? <laughs> Yes. Just about. Um, and then luckily, Rachel, um, it's like I already own 12 other books by him, just waiting for when <laughs> I read the first one. <laughs> I thought, I'm bound to like it. So I immediately read the second one in the trilogy, um, discovered I didn't own the third one in the trilogy amongst the numbers, so that's my seventh book for the year that I bought. Because <laughs> I, wow. I had to keep going. Um, and yeah, he's just wonderful. And I knew, it's one of those things where I just knew that I'd like him. And I didn't know why it's taken, the first one I bought by him, I bought 12 years ago. And it's just, it's taken me this long to, to get there. <laughs> but, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to have to snap one up next time I see them. You do come across them quite a lot, don't you? They're all over the place. So, and yeah. Yeah, I think they're probably much the same. Actually, I say that. I think his gardening books are much the same. He also wrote books about politics and religion and children's books and, one book, in fact, I, I bought in Anik um, about a book, which we were talking about just before we started recording. I bought, he wrote a, def- a defence, oh no, maybe like an attack of W. Somerset Morn, like a response to of human bondage. Oh. I can't what it's called, but I thought, well, that's such a sort of literary curio. I can't can't leave that here. Having not read of human bondage, <laughs> I wasn't quite ready to read a, a, a repost to it. But, but when I read of human bondage, I can move straight on to it. <laughs> You're ready for any situation. Exactly. I love I'm that. I'm so prepared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh um, but what I'm actually reading at the moment is um, a book by Mason Clare called The Three Sisters. Um, do, oh. you, do you know that one? It's, no, I don't. It's um. Well, yes, I, re- I do. It's the one about the Brontes. Well, I've got su- that. supposedly it is about the Brontes, and the, and the Virago reprints put a picture of the Brontes on the front. Um, but as far as I can tell. What's it? What's got in common is that it's three sisters in a vicarage in Yorkshire, in you know, at the t- set at the time when when the Brontes were growing up. But after that, it doesn't seem to have much in common with them, unless they did all fall in love with a visiting doctor. But okay. I don't, don't remember that happening in any of the tales I've read about the Brontes. <laughs> <laughs> Brontes, I should say. Oh. Brontes. Yeah. We, I, I know. I always pronounce it wrong. Anyway, it's um. I'm enjoying it except for the bits in dialect, which I'm skipping. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, yes, I never enjoy yeah. a dialect novel. They don't. They don't it's not much dialect. This sort of whenever a maid wanders in, she feels that she's in a dialect that, as far as I can tell, encompasses like Yorkshire and the Black Country and the West Country all in one go. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to like read it out loud as it's as it's written. But no one speaks like this. No one ever has. <laughs> yes, I'm not a fan of dialect in a novel. Just write. They spoke with inner dialect, and that's all you need. And then you can just write in ordinary English. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think we can all work it out in our heads. Exactly. 
Oh, o. Douglas, a similar one. I read Pink Sugar by her, which I really liked, but I had to skip every scene that the cook appeared in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we've been busy reading. We have. Um, that's what holidays do, I suppose. Um, yeah. let's, let's talk about schools. <laughs> um, so thank you very much to Karen for suggesting this topic. It's a great, great idea for a topic. Um, so let's start off, because obviously, Rachel, you are an English teacher, and you probably have a lot of things to say from that perspective, but let's start about our own uh, times as English students, perhaps, at school, and which books we read and, and whether or not we got on with them. Go. <laughs> yes, I mean, I remember, I loved my A-level books that I did, so I did. I was lucky to have Jane Austen for A-level, so I did Pride mm. and Prejudice and Emma. Um, and I loved them and my teachers were both very passionate about them and I had a lovely class and so it was a wonderful experience and we, I kind of had the book really opened up to me and it was, I kind of had this sort of young trendy teacher who had just come out of um, training college so she'd had all of these sort of ideas for teaching creatively so we did a lot of, you know, discussion based work and things rather than at GCSE I had a much more traditional teacher and I did not enjoy the text that we did at all. Um, I hated Lord of the Flies um, and I hated The Mirror of Casterbridge which was the other novel I had to do mm-hmm. by Thomas Hardy. And I mainly hated it because um, the classroom was set up where we all had separate desks. I had a lot of boys in my class who hated English um, and just spent the whole lesson groaning. And also my teacher had this thing where we had to go round and each take it in turns to read. Oh, yeah, and you did that, yeah. <laughs> I hate that because people are, most people I find at my school were um, not very good readers at all. And it was kind of agony getting through each sentence. You know, I'd already read four pages ahead by the time they got through to the next line. And it was just like monotone. And it sapped all the pleasure from the reading experience. And so I just, my memory of of a lot of English lessons at school, sadly, is of just being bored to tears. (laughs) Oh, that is a shame. Well, shall I I do mine before we, and then we'll carry on. Um, I. Um, I can only remember one novel we did at GCC, which was a, a perennial GCC favourite of Mice and Men, John Steinbeck. Um, which I seem to remember we didn't get to the end of and watch the video, the video, even though it's like 90 pages. I don't quite understand how that happened. But, um, oh. for A level, we did, uh, Captain Crowley's Mandolin by Louis de Bernier, um, and Hard Times by Charles Dickens. And I don't know how Captain Crowley's Mandolin ever ended up on a, um, sort of <laughs> because it's like it's sort of trashy beach literature. It's just like it's not good enough to be studied. <laughs> but maybe that's because I went to a state school. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but um, and in fact, I will. I did tweet out a question asking people to tell me about their um school experiences. So I'll give some responses in a bit. But my brother did write. Um, well, he said he's in a different class to me for GCSE, and he said I love to kill a mockingbird. I didn't get on with Wuthering Heights. Be kind about Captain Corelli. <laughs> Sorry, Colin, I, I can't be kind of candy even though you liked it. But that does suggest that he did two novels. Oh, no, we're in, in different AS classes. There you go, there's a little insight to the, <laughs> the Thomas Twins experience. Yes. But um, I loved <laughs> Hard Times. Um, and I, even though I put up with all the things that you just described, we read out loud, the class were not into it. I can remember someone in the class being outraged that we had to read a book. I, thought, like, I didn't know what you thought would happen when you signed up to English A-level. <laughs> I, um, and I think probably one of the reasons I loved it, and, and it set me off loving Dickens, is is the teacher. We had 
back Mr. Brooks, who admitted after we finished it that he hated Dickens, but he, well, I think that's the mark of a brilliant teacher, that he didn't personally like it, but, but the way he taught it and the way he sort of showed the, as the humour of Dickens made me love it. Um, and often, actually, I would do a lot of the reading because it was volunteer-based who got to read, so I was like, me, me, after it. <laughs> 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 so, um, so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of it was, was the Simon Thomas show. But, um, but yeah, um, shall I say what people said on Twitter and then we'll talk more about our experience? Yes. So, Rachel also did Pride and Prejudice and To Kill a Mockingbird and loved both of those. Um, Kazan loved The Great Gatsby, loathed The Scarlet Letter and The Red Badge of Courage. The Red Badge of Courage is one of those novels, I think it's by Stephen Crane, that I don't think anyone's heard of here, but it seems very popular in America. Unless, have you read it? No, I've never heard of it. No, I've never heard of it. Yeah, it was in a book I read about literary feuds. I think it was mentioned in that. As though it was this huge classic and I looked it up. But, um, it sounds like it's probably about the American Civil War. I could be wrong. <laughs> they do love to write about that. Um, <laughs> Uh, Deborah says she did Snow Falling on Cedars. What tribe? Bog off hats, you would take your unfettered hair with you. <laughs> well, I don't, I've not read the book, so I don't know what she's talking about. But, no, uh, I haven't either. It's an A level text now, certain syllabuses, but I've never taught it. it. Thank you, Deborah. Um, oh, actually, yes, I know. She, she's a more than me. Um, <laughs> well, I'm intrigued to know what that's about. Um, Ophelia enjoyed The House of Sixty Fathers at primary school. And loved to oh cider with Rosie she did wouldn't that be fun if you did cider oh, with Rosie at school that would be fun um and do, 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 do. um and oh, what's the name here one second oh, Booker Talk I do know Booker Talk's name but I can't remember it now <laughs> um sorry uh, fell in love with Shakespeare and George Orwell's essays so there you go mixed experience from Twitter yes I think you know like for me certainly. It was very much to do with how the text was taught and not necessarily the text itself because I didn't like another one of the texts I did for A-Level which was Beloved by Toni Morrison. I, just, I really hate Toni Morrison's writing and I know lots of people love her but I've tried lots of different ones and I just don't get on with her. Um, but the thing is I still enjoyed the experience of reading it and learning about it because my teachers made it interesting. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it doesn't matter to me whether I like the book or not. It was more about how was my experience of learning about it? How did I get to dig beneath the surface? And I think at GCSE, I just, it didn't help that my class weren't particularly, um, you know, passionate about literature. And also, I mean, I loved my teacher, um, but I just found it wasn't particularly dynamic. And I don't really remember much about the lessons. And I feel like if I did have a good time, I would remember them more. I remember my A-level lessons, but not my GCSE ones. In case people should, we should probably clear this up in case people listening aren't familiar with English oh, yes, education system. GCSE is what you do when you're aged 15 and 16. They're your exams to the equivalent of the American high school diploma, I suppose. And then um, when you're your A-levels are what you do to enter university, so you study for those when you're 17 and 18. And everybody in England has to do English literature for GCSEs, um, and you, you don't have to do it for A-levels. So you just think by the time that you get to A-levels, it's a class filled of people with a love of literature, but that, not mm. always the case. No, not the case. Not <laughs> um, the case. We also the, the thing that at our school that we were settered for GCSEs, so when I, was in, I was in a group with with the, you know, the, the most able kids in the year, supposedly. Um, whereas... A level was not set in. Um, so they could no longer sort of cater for the people who might be the most, um, 
Is there a way of saying this right? It's not obnoxious. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> there isn't, I'm afraid. But, um, but yeah, they, they could no longer sort of cater, sort of assume that everyone in, in the room was the, of the, the most intelligent people in the year, if that makes sense. I'm sorry. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I suspect most people listening to book podcasts probably empathize. <laughs> um, and in fact, I was the only person from my school who went on to do English at university, um, out of, you know, in a year of 150 or something. So, I think I was a bit set apart in actually really loving literature, whereas perhaps nobody else really did. (laughs) Um, But I definitely agree with the good teaching, except with with the case of Captain Crow's Mandolin, where I loved my teacher and she taught me English language as well, and those those classes were great as well, but even she, with her great teaching, Miss Bolter, could not make me feel anything other than... um, despising <laughs> Captain Crowley's mentalist. <laughs> so it was an insult that we were supposed to analyse that sort of writing. <laughs> God, especially when you're doing like Shakespeare and Dickens. It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about Shakespeare. What I, I, I assume that you probably had the same where from or from the age of twelve onwards we did a Shakespeare play every year. Yeah, I think so. Um I think every year from year seven, yeah, did Shakespeare. Um, I never really got into it at school, I have to say. Um, I only really developed a love for Shakespeare when I started teaching it. And yeah, I love Shakespeare, and that came at university. Um, but it just seemed bizarre. Like, at age 12, in year seven, I'd never read an adult novel. It just seemed bizarre to be like, here's a Renaissance playwright. <laughs> read this. Yeah. Like, like, I've literally... I'm reading, you know, Point Horror and Sweet Valley High right now. I'm not ready for Shakespeare. No, I know. It's very interesting how it's introduced. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about that's happened in English teaching over the last sort of decade or so is that teaching of Shakespeare has really changed and how you're trained to teach Shakespeare is very different to the way I was taught Shakespeare. And now it's much, well, it's much more about, um, the performative elements of it now. So you kind of teach it through drama and rather than everyone sitting around and reading out the book um, and analysing every sentence to death, you kind of perform it together, you pick out keywords, you kind of take words and you shout them at each other and you, you kind of develop the emotions and the feel of the play through playing with the language more than um, having to just sit and listen to it being read to you. Oh, that's a great, so, great idea, yeah. Yeah, so it's much more dynamic and interesting now. Like I was just started teaching a Midsummer Night's Dream today, as it happens, to my year sevens, mm. and um, you know we were just we were looking at the beginning speech by Aegeus. Um, he's the father of Hermia, and um, we were just like, I gave them little bits of the speech in their groups, and they had to kind of pick out the keywords, and then they had to perform the emotion of their lines in a little play that they devised together. So it's kind of like breaking it down like that. And I think it very much has to be age related. I think sometimes teachers go in, like certainly when we were growing up, I think you went in at year seven and it was like, we're doing Shakespeare. Mm. And you all had to sit and you had to read it line by line. You had no idea what it was about, what the jokes were, why it was funny. Um, and yeah, what, nowadays what was it, what was it's much it? more. Sorry. You, sorry no, carry you. on. You, I was just going to ask what the first one you did was. In, I think were, it was in the Midsummer Night's Dream. So our first one was Macbeth. Oh, I wouldn't start yeah. in year seven with Macbeth. That's a bad choice. Yeah, and I don't know if there was any choice. Presumably they've just got told to do whatever, on, whatever was on the curriculum that year. But, um, but oh, we had a 
quite a bad teacher for it, bless her. But she just we read it. I think we read it out line, you know, interview taking different parts and stuff. But then she just dictated the notes, and we just sort of wrote down what she said for the rest of the rest of the term, which is you know, none, none of us had a clue what she was talking about. And we just, yeah, I think she, yeah, it wasn't great. Um, I do get annoyed with because often I think a midsummer night's dream is is chosen because it's fanciful and youthful. But I also think it's one of his worst plays. I don't know if that's where I would <laughs> start. Oh, no, I mean, a lot of people like it, but um, obviously. But um, I think the one that first made me love him is Much Do About Nothing, which oh, I um, love Much Do remains Nothing. my favourite of his plays. Yeah, mm. um, I think we've already talked about it in our Shakespeare episode. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, actually, I did do that one at GCSE, and um, and I think even then, maybe the beginnings of me, of me loving Shakespeare, even if I didn't really understand all of it. But, um, do you think it, um, other than, or do, what do you think of Midsummer Night's Dream as, the, as, a, as a, like a starting point? I like it because it's very, it's easy to, to do a lot with it and to introduce all of the different language features of mm. Shakespeare and why he does things and to look at the kind of interspersing of serious with comic scenes and things on a level where you don't really have to talk about anything that's, um, of a more mature emotional level or experiential level. So by the time you get to Midsummer, um, much to about nothing, for example, you've got to talk about, you know, the fact that there's been a disappointment in love and all the kind of feelings that Beatrice and Murdoch have going on beneath the surface. And a child at the age of 11 isn't really able to compete that. Do you still think it's worth doing Shakespeare that early? If they find yes, the right I do. I think it is. I think it is. Shakespeare is accessible by anybody. In my, in my school, would they start doing it with the kids when they're in reception? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's just introducing them to the stories and then gradually building them up. And I think what's great about um, my school, in fact, because it's a bilingual school, the children, all of English is new to the children. So looking at Shakespeare is no different to them than looking at anything else. They don't see it as weird. Whereas English children look at Shakespeare and are like, don't get it, don't understand it, don't know what's going on about. And it's like, well, actually, you do. We do technically still use most of these words. Um, but I think there's this real barrier with people thinking Shakespeare's really difficult. So I think people go in with them in Summer Night's Dream because it's got fairies in it and the kids mm. could kind of access it on that way. But I think there's also a maturity level about it that it is accessible to a child of 11 who hasn't experienced much of the world and who we don't need to, like, for example, Macbeth, there's so much in there about the kind of the, the pain of having lost a child and not being able to have another child and all of those kind of things that they can't appreciate and grasp at that age. Um, so, I mean, obviously you can do it on a, on a lower, on a lower level that like you can pick out different ideas. But I think, um, in order to really grasp a Shakespeare play, you have to be a bit older, but that doesn't mean that you can't go in younger, but you just look at it on a more surface level, if you mm. see what I mean. You pick what you want to pick out, basically. Yeah. I think, that sounds, that all sounds very convincing. I might change my mind, but I think when I, <laughs> I came away from my own school experience, I guess, thinking I didn't really see the point in doing Shakespeare until maybe GCSE or even A level. But, and, just because it seems so foreign to anything else that we were reading for pleasure. If, or indeed, it might just put off students reading for pleasure, I don't know. But, but the thing um, is, it shouldn't. That's the thing. It shouldn't be like that. And that is what makes me cross about how Shakespeare is taught, because mm -hmm. it is very much taught as, this is Shakespeare, as if it's like some kind of different realm of literature. And it's not. True. And so, like, out of, out of history in some ways, because oh, I'm sure people do teach the context, but no one 
reading Shakespeare at that age has read anything published before, you know, 1950 probably. No. They certainly aren't familiar with other Renaissance writers or Restoration writers or, or Victorian writers probably. So it's just like this plucked out of history. I'd be intrigued to know if it's, a, if it's the same around the world or if it's just in in the UK that sort of Shakespeare is taught so early. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, actually. Well, perhaps, you know, I mean, Molière is taught from, from infancy in France. and, and Well, so, actually, so well, Molière is certainly taught to year seven at my school. So there I think go. it is. <clears throat> but again, it, they pick the play carefully and there's specific things that you're looking at in each one. And I think the earlier you start with Shakespeare and the earlier you kind of debunk this whole idea that it's something that's really difficult, um, then, you know, the more pleasure you get out of it. And like I say, you start with just looking at it from a story perspective. Isn't it a fun story? We're going to act it out. We're going to think about what this story relates, how the story relates to Elizabethan times. And we'll do a bit about iambic pentameter and stuff. But then by the time, obviously, you get to, to A-level, then you're really able to start picking out the themes and all that kind of stuff and exploring in much more detail how it refers to the society and what messages we can take away from it and, you know, really analysing the language mm. in great depth, which you don't do when they're, when they're younger. But, you know, Shakespeare's stories are great stories. And I think focusing on the story rather than focusing on being able to analyse every word that you use is, is the more important thing when you're a bit younger. But I think a lot of, of teachers expect children to read they, they they well I don't think actually a lot of teachers do this I think a lot of teachers did when we were younger I don't think it's the case now um I think when we were at school and perhaps older generations as well it was very much you're expected to sit there at the age of 11 and read it and appreciate it properly um mm-hmm. which you can't do and I think there's different levels of appreciation and that needs to be factored into how you teach something well we're in danger of just talking entirely about Shakespeare mm. so I should just loop back around to other um just books in general that were in school. I was intrigued to know if you've reread any of the books that you studied at school since school. Well, yes, because I've had to teach a lot of them. Ah, right. Um, which is really interesting, actually, because I hated Lord of the Flies with a passion when I was at school. Lord of the Flies is, for American listeners, uh, the kind of book that most English students read at school, and it has been for generations. Um, and if people haven't read it, it's about a group of boys that get uh, like lost on their pl- They're on a plane being evacuated during some non-existent war um, that like not really existing, but in the world of play, <laughs> being evacuated. And their plane is shot down, and they land on this deserted island. And several, all the adults on the plane have conveniently died. Um, <laughs> And there's like this ragtag of, of boys from the age of about five up to about 12 left on the island. And they've, they've been evacuated as schools. So they're with their schools or some of them have been sort of where everyone's died. There's only a few of them left from each school. And it's what happens when you leave children alone on an island and um, how quickly things fall apart. And I didn't really get it when I was at school. And again, like I said, we had the whole thing of everyone reading a paragraph each. and It was just torture. Um but reading it again for teaching it, I was just blown away by how good it was. And I I love it as a book and I love the experience of teaching it. Mm. And um, I love making it really kind of interesting and fun and pushing the kids to think about it on deeper levels, like bringing in Marxist criticism and things like that. So um, there's a lot you can do with it. And I really, really love the different layers in it and how you can kind of think, well, actually, you know, if I was, 11 what would I have done and you can really it's really good for kids to kind of think about a world without adults yeah well I haven't reread any of the things I did at school um yet so it'll be interesting to see 
I quite think like. you miss a lot when you're doing it at book at school. Yeah, I just can't imagine that I would either because I I love the Dickens, but there's, there's so many Dickens I've not read. Yeah, um, I'm definitely not going to reread Captain Crowley's Mandolin. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I might reread of Mice and Men. I certainly have reread Shakespeare since then. So, um... Oh, Mice and Men is wonderful. You should reread that. I love teaching that as well. Well, I might. I might. I've got again. I've got plenty of Steinbeck. I've not read, so it's just trying to get myself to do it. But one one day, Rachel, I'm, I'm young. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, this is such a broad topic, and we've talked for ages, and it's been fun. <laughs> but um, yeah. I guess ultimately, in the does reading a book at school mean you have to hate it? My answer is definitely no. <laughs> um, even if it's um, not the best teaching environment for whatever reason, I think you can still find enjoyment in the book potentially. But I also think, I think great teachers can make books you wouldn't normally like good. I think bad teachers can maybe make it harder for you to find a, the, what you, what you love in the book. But, yeah. but, um, yeah, it, I think those people who say, oh, I don't like English because it, you know, tearing the book apart ruined it for me, etc., etc. Um, I guess, it's, I mean, it is just a completely different process to picking up a novel and reading it at, for fun at home, and perhaps they shouldn't try and revisit those novels <laughs> just to concentrate on other ones. But yeah. um, but for those of us who love both aspects, love the analysis of a book and less love, you know, a misread every now and then, <laughs> they can both work. <laughs> um, so, yeah, for, for me, no. No, well, I mean, obviously I'm the same. I mean, for me, analysing a book opens up interpretations and viewpoints that perhaps you wouldn't have come to on your own and it should enrich your reading of it rather than detract from it um and i love opening books up to kids who often say to me oh who do you read this miss um and then we start reading it and they're like oh i never thought of that oh i never noticed that before and and it is adding enjoyment to it and that's i mean i can't read a book without analyzing it really so um i've always got my english teacher hat on no matter what i'm reading even if it's a misread so you know (laughs) And so I think it's, I think good teaching opens up to, opens up the text and also opens your eyes to, to like the language and how things are constructed. And it should add an appreciation of the writer's craft. I think if you're reading a book that you know is rubbish, like Captain Crowley's Mandolin, which I agree is a rubbish book, I've never made it past the first chapter, um, then I think it also can expose its flaws to you, which can then just like mm, make you not mm. want to read it. I mean, I had to teach birdsong um, in my last school to my A-level students, and the more we picked it apart, the more we gradually began to realise how shoddily written it was. Um, <laughs> so all of our enjoyment went down. But And I think, I don't really know why they choose some of those more modern texts that aren't particularly brilliantly written. But, I mean, uh, for me, I think it's it's about, I, I do think the teaching affects it, but for me, certainly, I, I don't think you can ever analyse too much. But I would say that because it's my job. So yeah, well, true. Yeah, I'm not going to talk yourself out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> um, great. Thanks again, Karen, for suggesting uh, that topic. That yeah. Great. Um, we've had a nice slew of topics, actually. And, in fact, next episode, um, we'll be doing a topic suggested by Keisha, which um, is... Um, let me get this right. Female authors writing male characters versus male authors writing female characters. So in the next episode, you can look forward to us tangling those up horribly. <laughs> we should explain what I, we mean. <laughs> I can just imagine the rambling now. <laughs> <laughs> but for this second half of this episode, we're talking about two uh, mid-century American plays. Um, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee and A View from the Bridge by um, Arthur Miller.
Um, I'll start by explaining why we're doing the Ishalay and then, um, yes. and, then I'll, and then I'll do Who's Afraid and if you're happy to take yeah. you from the bridge. Great. So Rachel and I went to see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf um, about two weeks ago now, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, um, I love Amelda Staunton, who's in it, and so I'm always very keen to go and see her whenever, whatever she does, wherever she is, I just follow her around. <laughs> <laughs> She's asked me not to go to Waitrose at the same time as her anymore. But, um, uh, Rachel agreed to come with me, we, and we, in fact, we got, um, managed to get much better seats than we paid for, and that we were yeah, stuck behind yeah. a pillar, but we put them all set next <laughs> in the, in the better seats further along the aisle, so we went down along the road, we went there. Um, and we thought we'll do something compared to this, and we'll see what we think of it. Um, Rachel came up with the suggestion of the Arthur Miller. But, um, the Albi play is, um, easily his most famous. It's, um, it's set in the 1950s, and it's um, set in the early hours after a party. George and Martha have got back from this party. George is a um, history professor, though not the head of the department. <laughs> um, and uh, his, his, he's in a quite sort of fraught um, marriage with Martha, um, who they basically spend half the time, or it's more than half the time, yelling at each other, mm-hmm. um, but also seem to quite enjoy that dynamic, at least in the performance we saw. Yeah. Um, it's a brilliant performance, in fact. It was, yeah, really, really yeah. good. Um, you can see that they're sort of dependent on each other for this dynamic, but also damaging both of them at the same time. Um, Martha has invited a younger couple, whose names I can't remember. <laughs> um, I'll look them up one second. Um, to come to the, to their house after the party. It's still, it's something like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. Um, but she's invited them for drinks over, um, after the party and they are called Nick and Honey. Um, Nick is a new professor in the science department. Um, and Honey is his sort of slightly dopey, very sweet wife. And as the evening progresses, the whole scenario between the four of them gets more and more loud and angry and intense and, Possibly adulterous. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's a very, it's a very long play. It was three hours with intervals of performance. We saw um, extremely intense, um, mm. and we'll talk more about that soon. But the plot basically is just a lot of arguing, a lot of exposing the wounds of each other to the ridicule of those around them, um, and <laughs> just yeah, a lot of uh, neuroses being unveiled. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good summary. Thank you. <laughs> Talk yeah. to us about A View from the Bridge. Um, a View from the Bridge is probably my favourite play. Um, <laughs> That's probably sport the ending of, the, of this podcast. But, keep going, keep going. <laughs> but I'm open to having my mind set. <laughs> um, and I, I, it's set in 1950s Brooklyn, and it's about um, Eddie and his wife Beatrice and their adopted um, daughter Catherine. So Catherine is Beatrice's niece um so she's her sister's daughter and she's lived with them ever since she was a baby because her mother died and um the play starts with Catherine who's 17 um coming home from from her typing course saying that she's got a job and Eddie is not happy about her having a job um because he wants her to stay at school and then it kind of transpires that he doesn't really like her having much male attention and he's worried about that um, and then, um, so that sort of domestic scene then moves into the fact that Beatrice's um, family are coming over from Italy. Eddie has managed to get them passage over. At this time, it was um, they, were, they weren't allowed to 
uh, Italians weren't allowed to come to America, so it has to be done kind of on the sly. And there's a real problem in the neighbourhood with lots of Italian um, immigrants coming over, and they all have to keep them secret. And it's the biggest. How times have changed. How times have changed. <laughs> um, and you have to kind of. There's this real um, community sense of you, nobody dobs in their neighbours. Nobody tells on. Like you never call up and and say that you've got an illegal immigrant in the in the neighbourhood. Um, but then when Beatrice's cousins arrive. Um, one of them is young and very attractive. One of them is married, and uh, Catherine and the uh, young, attractive cousin Rodolfo um, take a liking to each other instantly. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> very instantaneous, <laughs> very isn't it? Um, Eddie does not like this at all. It soon transpires that uh, Beatrice has long been concerned that Eddie cares too much about Catherine, and the rest of the play deals with the fallout of. Uh, this basically central issue and i won't say anything more for i don't want to ruin the story but um yeah very interesting play and have you seen it performed i have i saw a wonderful performance of it a couple of years ago i was teaching it for gcse um and luckily it was on at the same time not that i managed to get my kids to see it but i went and saw it and i had a great time um (laughs) it enriched my teaching it was by ivo van hove who is a danish director and he's got quite a um quite a lot of plays at the moment and he's getting really good reviews he's um he also did the version of streetcar named desire with julian anderson in it okay so these were both at the national not the national uh the young vic a couple of years ago and um it was mark strong played eddie um and he's a wonderful actor he's in a lot of films and I can't remember the name of the lady who did Beatrice but she was excellent um and it was just one of the best in fact I would say the the best live performance of a play I've ever seen. Wow, I was reading an article about the director the other day. Actually, it was in uh, the Sunday Times Culture magazine. Um, oh, talked it's about. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so this isn't quite a sort of fair comparison for me because I've not seen a production of um, A View from the Bridge. I, I read it this week for the podcast, so it's slightly hard for me to. This is sort of apples and oranges, I guess. Mm. Um, I have well, seen. I've a re- that- I've never read He's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I might add, actually. I've just seen that performance. So we're kind of coming at it from two different angles. Yes. <laughs> um, I had read um, He's Afraid of Virginia Woolf um, a few years ago, but as Rachel witnessed, <laughs> sitting in the theatre, I remembered not a single thing about it. <laughs> so, like, quite significant twists I didn't remember. So. <laughs> oh, that's a surprise. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, um, we're not, I don't think we should talk about the twist even in, even in the end of the episode because... Um, no, we should leave that. Um, but, um, yes, I was surprised that I didn't remember it. But, uh, I have seen, um, and it's obviously not what we're talking about, I saw a, a production of All My Sons, um, by Arthur Miller, and that's the best thing I've ever seen produced. Oh, David, really? David Suchet and Zoe Wanamaker. Um, oh, wow. And, um, and Jemima Rupert from The Famous Five, which is why I went to see it. But, um, but, Oh my gosh, David Suchet is astonishing. I'd never, having only seen him as Poirot, I had no idea. I mean, he's great as Poirot, but I had no idea what an, what an amazingly powerful actor he is on the stage. It was a really astonishing production. But sadly, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about <laughs> <laughs> on the bridge. Um, before we get onto that, what did you think of uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Well, do you know, it was a very intense experience, as you said. It was... Um... I think there's something about plays with very small casts that makes mm, them mm. incredibly kind of 
intense and quite emotionally draining to watch actually um and I found it very difficult to watch at times actually um to see these people really falling apart in front of you and there was so much I think it was so brilliantly acted and there was there was so much anger and so much stuff that was unsaid and resentment and I thought it was really interesting how you had the juxtaposition of the two couples and the two the younger couples so clearly incredibly uncomfortable being there and you could mm, feel yeah. that how uncomfortable they were and you know when you're just sitting there and your toes are curling and it's just it was like being forced to watch something that you didn't want to watch mm. um, but at the same time I couldn't take my eyes off of it yeah it was I mean, it's a credit to all four of the actors in it who were just amazing. Um, but it, it, because they're sort of taking turns to pick on one of the people, and whilst they're begging them not to, like, are just picking the things that their weaknesses and exposing them and just pushing harder and harder until they're, they're feeling worse and worse, and then it's the next person, and they're, and they're sort of demolished in turn. So it's just, it's excruciating to watch, um, but so brilliantly written. Mm. Um, and I think, um, Something that would not come out in a, in reading or in a bad production is the um, the way that it does has it has a sort of like step to step logic in terms of the emotional logic in, in, in terms of whether someone's feeling particularly vulnerable or or feelings amused because sometimes it is a game and then sometimes it's sort of unhealthy dependency. Overall, it's just a mess because like. Because the, the couple is a mess, like there's no yeah. consistency there. But moment to moment in the writing and in this production that they've really brought it out, it all makes sense. Each step makes sense. But it just you take a step back, you think, this, "My gosh, this couple are a nightmare," and they're and they're destroying each other. Yeah. Um, and they're destroying this young couple who've come to visit them. Yeah. Um, it was really who, interesting actually because I did think when I was watching it um, how. I would have felt if I'd if I'd read the play first because I think I would have come to the play with my own expectations and my own interpretation and not having read the play I've just got the interpretation of the director and, and those actors mm-hmm. and I thought it was really interesting um you could see I mean they've obviously decided that there was this real undercurrent of the fact that they did love each other mm-hmm. and they also knew how far they could push it with the other one yeah, yeah. there was a sense of them holding back at certain points being like, I'm not going to say that because that will be too much. And, you know, I'm, I, I am going to say this because I know that I'll get away with it, that kind of thing. Yeah. So like a very finely judged tug of war, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that's what the, the younger couple just aren't prepared for that and don't know what quite what's happening when they're thrown into it. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, that other productions might have made, George more sort of explosive maybe and more he what made his performance so good is how quiet he often was and how like mm. his lines would be sort of said in a, with resignation rather than with anger maybe yeah um but it was I mean it was a matinee we saw as well so they had to go and do it again in the evening I mean I don't <laughs> know how they did it I would have been yeah. exhausted if I were them I, I genuinely felt exhausted after just watching it mm. um, but it is brilliant it's still on I believe in London if people yes highly recommended um, but yes I as you know s- what you thought of A View from the Bridge I'm desperate to know Ah, well, yeah, I, it's one of the things where I really liked it, and I really wish I'd been, I've seen a production of it, because it really, it felt much, in a way more than many plays I read, like one that 
really needs to be seen because I, I really enjoyed it reading it, but it, there's so much power in the in the language and in the characters that if if I'd be like Street Car Named Desire, I felt like I needed to see the emotional levels coming out in the way that people spoke. If that mm. makes sense, because um, it's a really interesting sort of moral problem on the page, and I imagine it's much more of a like an emotional problem on the stage. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but the setup is, is, I really like that it's quite simple in some ways, but it brings out all these other questions and it brings, like, you know, when is a family too close? <laughs> um, and, yeah. like, what is a just expectation of someone you've brought up or what is overstepping the boundary? And, and it's also, like, nothing, nothing's ever really made too clear in various different relationships or various mm. different identities of the characters in the play. It's mm. not like a big expose of someone. Like, oh, you, like, these people, you're like, you want to sleep with your niece. But that's never like a big denial sort of thing. It's more like the audience is thinking, does he? I don't know. How unhealthy is this relationship? Is it, is what he's asking okay? Um, and other characters, which I won't spoil, I guess, that, um, you're thinking, I don't quite know what's true and what's not. I think it's really cleverly written. Yeah, so cleverly done. Yeah, um, I'm interested to know about the performance. Was it sort of like a, an emotional, sorry, an exhausting, like tense one, or was it more? Like, yes. Yeah. Very exhausting, and but it it was very moving as well, um, and it was really interesting because they, the director, obviously had a very sympathetic view of Eddie, um, whereas it's quite interesting because I taught it and. It's interesting how it splits people. Half the class would always be feeling sympathetic and half the class would be like, he's disgusting, he's oh, wrong. Yeah. So it, it, it's really possible to read it in any number of ways. And actually, every time I read it, I come out feeling different every time. So I think, I think there are both it, plays as well. As you say, the, like the, the director's choice and the actor's choices would make just completely different plays yeah. in many ways. Yeah, particularly actually with this one, it seemed, as you say, like, there's no obvious empathy, I guess, or like there's no you, you can go either way, or empathy or not, or sympathy or not. Yeah, and I think that's what's the joy about um, plays as text is is the fact that you can read it, you can think, oh, I think this, or let's look at the language and think about this. But then you go and watch a performance, and your interpretation can be completely turned around on you, and it's exactly the same words, and yeah, but yeah. it's just said in a different way. Um, just the tone of voice you can use or the way that you look at someone or where you're standing can completely alter how you feel about the characters in the situation. And I really want to read He's Afraid of Virginia Woolf now because I want mm-hmm. to know whether I would have done the same thing that they did. One thing I really liked about A View from the Bridge, um, I say like, let's see how much it is. I think it's really interesting that the question of illegal immigration is is like mm-hmm. the big plot point there and it's obviously so much in the news at the moment what i really liked is that in the play as i read it no one really cares that they're illegal immigrants they're just no. like that as people they're here and you know that's you know very much my attitude towards people who, who immigrants but um and it, it, they obviously know that if the authorities find out it'd be a big issue but no one's like oh those horrible immigrants come over here to take our jobs and steal our women sort of thing and that's not really <laughs> even a subtext in it. It's more just like, no. I've, I've got this power of you because I could shop you to the authorities um, based on this, but it's not actually something that I'm judging you for. Yeah. Which no, and I think that's, 
Yeah, it is really interesting. Like the fact that they're illegal immigrants isn't an issue. It's um, the fact that like them being there is not the problem. And there is very much that attitude as well of, well, we've all had to immigrate here at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So who cares? Um, and it is very much about, yeah, the power issue of, but I'm allowed to be here and you're not allowed to be here. So I can use that against you if I have to. But the mm. fact that that's like a capital crime in that community um, is really interesting as well. A lesson that perhaps many more people could learn. Um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I think having read this one and having seen all my sons, I just want to go and see a lot more Arthur Miller now. <laughs> I, I just think, love Arthur Miller. Yeah, I love yeah. Arthur Miller. Head here first, guys. Arthur Miller's a good playwright. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, as far as I can tell, with Albie, it was more this like this was his big, hit, his big success. And they, they've also, well, we also saw they have the goat on around the corner. Like it was yeah. literally just the next theatre had it on, um, <laughs> which is a, his play about a man who's in love with a goat. <laughs> but, um, but the review I read of it, again in the Sunday Times, I think, was quite dismissive of it as a play. I think they, yeah, they thought the production was fine, but the play wasn't very good. So. That's one view. Who knows? But I can't think of no, any other no. plays by him. Those are the only two I can name. No, I mean, I, I'd never heard of anything other than He's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, what, what do you think of it as a title, by the way? Yeah, the thing is, I didn't... I, I was wondering, actually, when we were watching it, because it's from a song that they sing, um, and I was wondering whether that's like an American thing, because I've never heard of it. I think it's just in the play. I think it's just like they thought it was a funny joke to sing Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf with Virginia Woolf in there. But, uh, which, you know, is an odd basis for, for a yes. title. Like, unless I'm, unless we're, you know, both missing something. To me, it's, I mean, you know, we both love Virginia Woolf. But to me, it just seems a, like it might just put off people who don't like Virginia Woolf and, you know, promise something to people who love Virginia Woolf that they're not going to receive. It seems a really weird title. Like, yeah, I it's bizarre. You know, I think maybe, I mean, is it some kind of reference to um, in intellect or an inability to understand, mm. like, something? I mean, I don't know, or just clear words, I don't know. Text in if you know the answer, guys. Yeah, <laughs> not sure about that. Weird, yeah. Um, and then I believe it was Alan Bennett who wrote a book called Me, I'm Afraid of Virginia Woolf. So <laughs> it keeps going. <laughs> um, yeah, um... I guess we can come towards our... Sorry, we've been talking for quite a while, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> um, which are you going to choose, One Wonders? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I it's well, obviously, I mean, I, I haven't changed my mind. I mean, it was wonderful to see He's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but I think for the kind of complexity and the way in which I love the characters and I love how it's written and I love how I, I come away from it every time with a different perspective. I mean, I just love A View from the Bridge. I think it's a wonderful play. Um, and I feel like I, w I might well pick A View from the Bridge if I had seen it. <laughs> um, I think it does, <laughs> in this case, make a huge difference. Um, and, and yeah, off the back of that something performance, I'm going to have to go with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But um, next time A View from the Bridge is on in London, we need to go. And yes. then you can see if you change your mind. Yes. Um, I feel like we've talked about those plays quite quickly compared to how long we talked in the first <laughs> half. But I, th I think both of them, in terms of plot, are very simple. Yeah. Um, I, well, I mean, View from Rich is much more a sort of moral quandary with with under with extra layers, whereas if you with um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is just so much 
so many layers and so much going on with those four characters that mm. with, there's no real central moral question or more you know it's more just like what on earth is going on in this relationship yeah. <laughs> but, um, but either way there's not that much <laughs> to talk about in terms of plot i guess <laughs> no they're both interesting as well is that they're both set over very short spaces of time which adds to the intensity i think as well mm, and, and close see... spaces yeah yes so it's interesting but i mean i think American mid-century playwriting was a real um, time of a real flourishing in the art of constructing very interesting and engaging plays that really involve you as an audience. Um, so I think it's well worth exploring that period. Yeah, I think it's interesting that these two plays are written at a very similar times. They're both written in the 50s, aren't they? Yes. Um, it does seem that intensity and that like questioning of... Of what the play was supposed to do, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Because yeah, I don't, I don't know a lot about American plays before that or after that. (laughs) (laughs) But certainly over in England, like plays in the thirties and forties were much more sort of Noel Cowards, weren't they? And that sort of yeah, fay and cleverly written, but sort of light and amusing, maybe. Um, And these these are much more uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to perhaps a more Greek drama tradition of being forced to watch people fall apart and having no ability to intervene. And that was very much certainly Miller's idea behind A View from the Bridge. He was very into this idea of the Greek tragic hero. And I think there is an element of a Greek tragedy, certainly, in uh, He's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. So. So maybe not one if you want a fun night out for that you should definitely go and see 42nd street which was which is great fun <laughs> 1930s tap dance and nothing of if import happens at all but um i see all these two plays in consecutive weeks or and they um i don't think there can be more different plays than 42nd street and who's a period of virginia wolf they're both brilliant um but yes if you if you can get up the stamina to cope with they're both brilliant plays and we recommend them. But there you go, Rachel picks one and I pick the other. Yeah. Um, in the next episode, as I say, we'll be doing um, male authors writing female characters and female authors or versus female authors writing male characters. Um, and in the second half, we will be doing um, Miss Palfrey at the Claremont by Elizabeth Taylor and At the Jerusalem by Paul Bailey. Mm. Um, which I have the dim recollection have something in common but I'm no longer sure if that's true (laughs) (laughs) they're both set in an old well in an old people's home ish (laughs) I've not read out the Jerusalem yet have you read it yet yeah I started it but I gave up oh no I hate it I hate it Oh my gosh, well there's a spoiler for next week. Are you going to finish it? No, no I left it in the holiday cottage. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, yeah. okay, and there's something to look forward to. <laughs> I have lots to say. Um, all the books and authors that we talked about are you can read at stuckinabook.com if you've heard one in passing and want to go and look it up. Otherwise you can catch me at stuck underscore in a book on Twitter and Rachel is at book underscore snob on Twitter and at booksnob.wordpress.com Oh, fine then. Okay, I, th- I thought we should start giving these things out at the end just to, you know, keep the joy going. Yeah. <laughs> We're online, people. Uh, uh, me yeah, only so occasionally, connected. but, you know, <laughs> five more, so. If you tweet Rachel, I might see it, basically. <laughs> I'll let her know. I'll text her. <laughs> Great. 
great. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.